Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We have a fantastic edition of Getting to the Point, our series with our friends at Aero Bar, where we focus on the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game. But with the quality of guests we have today, we did that and a little bit more. It's not often you have the chance to speak with a guy who is a former top five player in the world, someone who has beaten Roger Federer in the later stages of an Olympic event, a guy who has had so much success both on and off the court in all of his endeavors. That's exactly what we had the opportunity to do here at Crack Rackets as we have James Blake joining us on the show today. Now, of course, for me personally, I will just say as an American born in 1995, a lot of my formative memories first watching tennis are watching James Blake matches. I remember the James Blake-Donald Young U.S. Open battle. That was one of the first matches I think I convinced my parents. I was like, come on, like, let me just stay up and watch this tennis. I know it's late, but I really like tennis. And they were like, okay, I guess that's fine. You can stay up and watch. And so, you know, to now have the opportunity all of these years later to speak with him. I think that match was, what, 2008? Yeah, so I would have been 13. Honestly, at that point, I probably didn't even have to barter with the parents. I probably just stayed up, although it's U.S. Open round. No, it would have been right at the end of summer. Anyways, that's a that's a side note. We'll leave that story aside. It is great to have James on the show. We get to the chance to talk about his career. Obviously, here at Cracked Rackets, we are huge college tennis fans, so we wanted to ask him a little about a little bit about his time in college tennis, what it's like to get to play on your team with your older brother. Uh, and of course, we dive into his pro career as well. I ask him what it's like to play over 80 matches during the 2006 season, how he manages his nutrition, his fitness when he's a top, you know, 10, top five player in the world. We actually talk about it. He talks about how important it was for him just to have calories. I was like, yeah, dude, you know, you were a tank in 2006. You were a big boy with the sleeveless shirt. It made sense. And, you know, he explains the, I suppose, science behind what he was doing. It's a really enjoyable conversation. I cannot wait for you listeners to hear it. Of course, the reason we are able to do this here on the Cracked Interviews podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at Aerobar and Midwest Sports. This may be the first time you're listening to a Crack Racket show. We have a motto we like to live by here. It's look good, feel good, play good. That's where our friends at Midwest Sports Aerobar come in here at Cracked Rackets. You go to Midwest Sports, you're going to find anything you need from a tennis equipment standpoint. All the best brands, all the best prices. You use our promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off your order as well as a few additional perks as well. You'll let them know we sent you there. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15. Of course, if you want to make a jump in your nutrition, you want to start taking things just a little bit more seriously, get that extra 5% out of yourself on the court, turn to our friends at Aerobar. If it's good enough for James Blake, it ought to be good enough for you. It's the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business, more potassium than a banana, delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, and chocolate chip flavor. And of course, it comes with a podcast, right? This Getting to the Point episode and all the incredible interviews we've had, Jay Berger, Michael Russell, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, It's a you know, a huge credit to our friends Mark Aerosmith, Andrew Golub over at uh, Aerobar. The way you can support them, go to aerobar.com, order yourself up a case of Aerobars, use the promo code CRACKED15 to get 15% off your order as well. But with that in mind, and without further ado, let's get to our conversation with the one and only James Blake. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast today, he is a former world number four in singles, a 10-time ATP singles champion, seven-time doubles champion, and one of the few people out there who can justify to his parents that he dropped out of Harvard. James Blake, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to have you. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. I appreciate it. I like that. That's a new intro. I haven't heard that one before, that I can justify dropping out of Harvard. 
<laughs> yeah, I think if you reach world number four at that point, you made the right decision, right? Well, I, I hope so. I, I, although I, I do have to qualify that they, they don't consider it a dropout. I'm officially on leave, so I can go back and finish if I want. <laughs> Hey, yeah, no, it's the best leave assignment you could have possibly had to go play 15 years of pro tennis. That sounds like a victory, and obviously uh, we want to talk about your career today. I want to talk about just so many different things, but the place I think we have to start, obviously it's been a crazy seven months for all of us. We're all adjusting to the new realities. I, just, I have to ask, how are you doing? You're staying safe? You're staying healthy? Enjoying yourself? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, the concern and my, uh, um, my family's doing good and the kids are doing online schooling and they're adjusting well. And I, I moved out to San Diego a few years ago and wasn't always, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't exactly kicking and screaming, but it wasn't my first choice. And, um, I have to say my wife was, uh, was right. 70 and sunny every day is not the worst place to be. And the kids love it. They're able to be outside. And in this time where we're kind of confined, uh, being able to walk outside and, and get to the beach and do that kind of stuff. Uh, it's it's been a good uh, it's been a good place to be. Yeah, no, definitely the right decision. Um, you know, we had the chance to talk to your brother, Thomas, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I just want you to know, he talked a lot of trash. He said you owe him a lot of different things. But no, uh, you know... Yeah, but the place I want to start because I also had an older brother who is the reason probably I got so into the sport of tennis for me. It was just I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to go on the court with him, and we got the chance to play doubles together in high school. I will always remember that tournament. It was a blast. Uh, For you growing up having a brother who was playing the sport, I mean, how influential was that to your falling in love with the game? Well, it's huge. I mean, I don't want to give him too much credit. His ego is already big (laughs) enough, but no, I'm just kidding. we, we actually feel exactly the same. We, we both grew up um, wanting to be kind of like our parents. Our parents played, and so they would take us out to, um, to play tennis with them. And then I wanted to be as good as my big brother. I looked up to him in every way. So um, at that age, he was bigger, stronger, faster, taller, better at tennis, you know, smarter, everything. He was, he was better than me. I wanted to kind of look up to him and be, you know, try to keep up. And it definitely pushed me and motivated me just to, I mean, in anything. I wanted to be able to play kickball with him and his friends. I want to play basketball with him and his friends. I wanted to be as good as them. So I had to work. I was tiny. I had to work so much harder to even try to keep up with them. And um, it definitely helped me. It made a huge difference. And then everything he went through, college tennis, uh, starting on the tour, if you don't have firsthand experience, the next best thing is having your older brother go through something. So seeing what he did, seeing the mistakes he made, seeing the things he did right, the successes he had, and getting that experience through that, it, it definitely helped me. And um, it absolutely motivated me. And, you know, he was he, he couldn't have been a better big brother to have just to see what, um, you know, what I was in store for. And then as I had a little bit more success, obviously, he, he maybe didn't have the same um, the same success on tour, but he had great perspective. He always had great perspective. He was the one that kept my kept me in check no matter what. I mean, the first the first Nike check that rolled in and I'm. 19 years old and I said oh, I'm gonna go buy a car he just looked at me and said what are you an idiot I'm like no he's like you're buying a house before you buy a car I said okay you're right you know that, that makes more sense it's always a much better investment like he, he was always there to just kind of keep me in check and make sure I was doing the right thing even if he didn't have that same experience he knew he knew me well enough to know what I should and shouldn't be doing Mm-hmm. No, that is such. Yeah, even if it's not in the tennis world, I'm sure it's just great to have that sort of advice. And you know, you talk about having to work hard. I think that's you know, you're being a bit modest. Obviously, someone who makes the finals of Kalamazoo, you're having a little bit of success as a junior. And for you, you know, going through the ranks at that time, you've spoken about it before. But to have people like you know Andy Roddick, Marty Fish, Taylor Dent, all in your age group, all doing similar things, you know, what does that mean? For, or how did that help your career to have those? peers maybe to measure yourself up against you know that group is in my mind we're, we were pretty special and i loved it and i know i've talked to a lot of the generation before us that they pushed each other by sort of almost hatred hatred or jealousy or uh almost spite because you know the courier sambris chang um agassi that generation i mean they're so accomplished but they wanted to beat each other because they just really wanted to be, I'm the one that's going to stand out. I got to be better than these guys. And they, they didn't really get along. Our group, I don't know why or how it started. Maybe it was with the Davis Cup with myself and Andy being on there early. Andy sort of shooting up right away. And well, we, we got along. We wanted to do things together. If I lost, I wanted Andy to win. If Andy lost, he wanted me to win. Same with Marty. Marty lived with me when he first moved to Tampa. And 
we got along great, and, you know, before he got his own place. And then uh, by the time we did get our own places, we lived uh, around the corner from each other. You know, we practiced together all the time. He's still one of my best friends. Um, we are doing this podcast. I got to say, I'll, I'll get a plug in. It's, it's his wife's birthday today. Happy birthday, Stacy. I mean, we, we, we were all at each other's weddings. Like, we, we wanted to push each other because we all wanted to succeed. We wanted kind of the, you know, to, to have American tennis be um, as good as it could be. We all heard the rumors of when's the next Agassi coming? When's the next Sampras coming? When's the next um, Chang coming? And so we all felt like that together. And we wanted to accomplish something. And so that's why probably the sweetest moment of my career was uh, the Davis Cup win with sharing it with Andy, with the Bryan brothers. Um, and so many of the other guys were there. Robbie was there. Marty was there. You know, to be to be a part of that was um, that was truly special for me because we all I mean, we're all still close. Has anyone talked to Marty about the socks? Are you just like, guys, like that's way too much ankle, Marty? <laughs> you know, I, I, another one, I don't want to blow up his ego, but. I feel like he started a little trend. You see a lot of people wearing the, the ankle socks now. And I mean, when I go, you know, when I'm golfing and in shorts or whatever, I'm wearing the ankle socks now. But I don't know how he did it when he was still on tour moving the way we moved because I needed the thicker socks to be able to uh, to be able to perform and be able to run and feel like my, my feet weren't going to go like through the shoes. Yeah, I agree. Definitely a pox on house fish. But, you know, you talk about, uh, obviously, your fellow male contemporaries. I, you know, looking through your career, you have two Hopman Cup titles, 03, 04. You get to play with Serena. You get to play with Lindsey Davenport as well. And, you know, there were so many fantastic American women during that time. Obviously, Venus Williams, another one, Jennifer Capriati. You can go on and on and on. Yeah. Did it help to have that as well? You guys are at a point where, you know, not only are a bunch of American men succeeding, but you have American women at the top of the sport as well. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. I mean, those are pretty two pretty decent partners I had for Hopman Cup. I made, made, my <laughs> job, made, made my job pretty easy, but I, uh, I, I had so much fun playing those. And yeah, actually, it's so fun. For me, it was fun to be a part of that, almost like a, like a psychology or sociology experiment with seeing sort of the different mindset of Serena and Lindsay and how they were successful in their own right, but doing it the way they needed to do it. Serena is possibly the most mentally tough, um, competitive person I've ever been around. And that's including, I've been around Michael Jordan. And those two I put on the same level in terms of being that competitive about wanting to win every single thing they do, competing every single practice, every single match, everything they do, they're competitive and want to win. And we'll do anything to win. And that's Serena. And Lindsay was so different. She's, so, she's one of my closest friends now. She's as nice as a human being can be. But she had a different mind. She didn't have that. She has the killer instinct, but it's not as outward. Um, and the way it works for them. And she would, she would actually, it seemed like, have um, almost doubts on the court. Because she's got so much talent. But then if anything goes wrong, it was, it was a little different. But um, Seeing how they succeed individually was was a ton of fun to see such great champions. I mean, she was she was as humble as someone can be. She, I still remember when we first played. I didn't know her going into it very well at all. And she we started the first mixed doubles match. And before we start warming up, I was like, "Which side do you want to play? How should we do this?" And she's like, oh, "I don't know." I'm, she's like, "I'm not that good at doubles anyway." So I just you know, let's see how it goes. <laughs> and they start going through her accolades in the introduction. Former number one in the world, Australian Open champion, um, a bunch of other titles. I just stopped. I stopped the ball and I looked at her and I said, did you just tell me you weren't very good? She's like, oh, I, you know, whatever. I, I have good partners or something. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, she's so humble. And it was just a totally different sort of mindset dealing with, with both of them. But they both carried me to titles. So I was, I was proud to be with both of them. Yeah, that's got to be a lot of fun. You played the Thomas Blake role on Harvard on those Hopman Cup teams. You're like, I'll just ride, you know, five, six singles in the line if you guys do the heavy lifting. That's half the fun. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, the reason I asked that, that was all a long setup to ask about the current state of American tennis because clearly something is going right on the women in the women's game. You've got Sophia Kennan, you've got Amanda Anisimova, Coco Goff, Katie McNally, Whitney Osigway. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of how many talented young Americans there are and that doesn't even include the the keys the sloan stevens jen brady's you know danielle collins's of the world and it also does feel like we've reached a point where you know the tommy paul opelka fritz tiaf 
Buffalo cohort, they're starting to work their way up the rankings as well. And so I guess, you know, it's a superficial thing. I don't know if you can measure it, but do you feel that camaraderie, that continuity in American tennis? And, you know, what are your thoughts on the current state of, of the game here? Yeah, you know, I'm really, really proud of men's and women's tennis in America right now because I think there's a few things. One, the women are, are so accomplished. They're accomplished at a young age. Coco Golf is incredible at her age. Sophia Cannon is amazing at her age. What they're doing is truly impressive. I think it says a lot about the inspiration they got from Venus and Serena Williams, um, especially seeing so many women of color um, that are playing with Otigwe, Golf, um, Taylor Townsend. Keys, Sloan Stevens, all being inspired by Venus and Serena. It speaks a lot to their um, level of impact on the history of the game. Um, and on the men's side, the thing I'm proud of, for one, I do think they're all um, they're all improving. I think they're all progressing. Um, they're not progressing as quickly as the women are. That's somewhat natural in terms of how men and women develop a lot of times, but um, they are progressing, and I think I'm really proud of the way they are getting along. Because, like I said, the generation before us, I don't think they got along. I think we sort of set that tone of like you can still want to beat the crap out of each other on the court, and then go out to dinner. Andy and I had a had a bet, a kind of a bet, like throughout our whole career, if we played each other, whoever won took the other one out to dinner that night or the next night. And you want to you want to you want to earn that dinner. You want to pay for their dinner. But you want to be able to kind of hold it over the heads, and you want to you want to beat them every single time. Um, but you, it's not going to change the fact that you guys are still friends. And I think these guys are doing that. I see Tommy Paul getting along with these guys. I see Riley Opelka and um, and Taylor Fritz and all these guys getting along well. Francis gets along with all those guys. I mean, Francis is as likable as they can be. All these guys are 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 getting along, but I still see them competitive and wanting to beat each other. And that to me is something that I feel like I'm proud of that our generation sort of not that we started that, but I think we had an impact on showing people that you can get along. I mean, the generation right after us, Isner and Query, are best friends. I mean, they, those guys get along as well as they possibly can. And I think that was right after kind of our generation. Yeah, I, um, you know, I remember obviously when I was <laughs> coaching Mike and, you know, you and Mike played at the U.S. Open first round the one year. And yeah, I mean, it was able to, I mean, I, pretty sure i had dinner with thomas you know with your brother the night of or the night before i mean i'm, I'm positive i went out with thomas after that but um, <laughs> that that i know but yeah that it was you know and that that's also not mike being like oh my god what are you doing hanging you're hanging out with the enemy's brother and you, i saw you talking to james and you know, it's like you know it's you know you want to crush each other and well you yeah. know you and i are both you know both good friends with with matt with daily and i mean it's yeah he is the player that I played the most times in college tennis at our biggest rival. And then he's the guy that I traveled the world playing tennis with after. You yeah. Know? So, yeah it's, it's, it's something that's great about tennis. It should be great about tennis. And there wasn't that same kind of, um, I don't know, motivation or, or jealousy that, you know, I, I've heard the generation before us, I heard, I think it was Michael Chang talked about the top 10 mystique and you wanted to almost like show that there was a difference when you're top 10, there's a way of conducting yourself and it's just different. And, you know, me and Mike Russell didn't have that. You know, I, I, he didn't, he wasn't in any way scared of me. He had beat me in challengers before at that point. So it wasn't like he was scared to step on the court with me. I wasn't trying to hide anything. He knew how hard I worked. He knew how I knew how hard he worked. We wanted to go each go out that day and beat each other. You know, I wanted to get as many points as I could. He wanted to turn it into, you know, a little bit of a track meet and, and make a ton of balls. And like, that, that's just the way we wanted to play. And we, Whoever wins that day comes out on top and, you know, moves on. And, and if he had beaten me that day, hey, I want him to go ahead, and, go ahead and win the tournament. Get to the course. Do whatever you can do to play your best and, you know, same the other way. And I love that. love that attitude. Mike Russell is as well, like a great friend and someone I'll always have tons and tons of respect for. Yeah, no, sure. I, that, that's on me, by the way, Mark. I should have included you when I was saying Dent and Roddick and Fish. I should have said, and Aerosmith. That one's on me. That was a slip up. I forgot to include you in that group. That's my oh, bad. Yeah. But 
you know, obviously <laughs> one thing, James, that you have that some of those other guys did not is you made the decision to go to college. And we already yeah. talked about the influence your brother has had on your career. But again, Kalamazoo finalist, you know, you lose yeah. in four sets, but you're playing a four set match before you're 18 years old. So clearly yeah. you've got the goods. What made you make the decision of, you know what, I need to go spend some time in college? Was it the physical development? Was it just to get away from the action for a little bit? What led to your two years at Harvard? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for, for doing as many podcasts as you do on college tennis. I listen along with Chris Woodruff. <laughs> thank you. Um, and it's awesome the detail you go into because college tennis is an incredible experience. I had such a good time for my two years there. And to be honest, the reason I went there was because I had no idea um, the sort of how much I had improved over that year or two that I got much better. Um, so I really felt like I needed college tennis. And it was, and I'm glad I did. And I definitely think I was, I was correct in that assumption that I needed college tennis to improve mentally and physically because I was 17 when I went off to college and I was not, I was about 155 pounds maybe. Um, so I wasn't ready for the rigors of the tour physically and mentally. I was still learning. I was still growing, which is another reason I'm impressed by some of these young American male and females is you're not necessarily always a fully formed adult when you start on tour. So to hear um, what they go through and to see what they go through and to do it on a public scale, that's not always easy. And people need to sometimes cut them a little bit of a break with the fact that they're growing up in front of cameras. So for me to be able to grow up and have two years uh, where you get training, you get um, scheduled practices. I had my brother as a senior when I was a freshman. You got people that you can practice with all the time. You get coaching. Um, and you're learning how to be an adult. You're scheduling your own classes. You're doing a lot of things that um, you weren't doing in high school. You weren't doing because you had your parents as a sort of a safety net. So now you're doing things on your own, but you're not fully on your own. You're not paying rent. You're not uh, making your travel schedules. You're not uh, picking out your tournaments. You're doing a lot of things sort of as a bridge to becoming um, a pro tennis player or a business, whatever you're planning on going into after college. So for me, those two years were really important uh to grow physically and mentally and I, i'm really really thrilled i did and like i said i'm happy you guys do so much on it because college tennis is i mean it is thrilling it's exciting i know mark uh mark remembers it very well and um i heard the, the podcast with thomas and, and him talking about it talking about the days back in palmer dixon winning matches there and i mean it just brings a smile to my face because i used to go up and watch when i was in high school watch my brother and that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be on that team i wanted to be part of their sort of that camaraderie, the riding on a, I mean, at Harvard, a lot of times you're riding on a van. You're not exactly, you know, flying private or anything. You're riding on a van, but those van rides where you're playing hearts and sitting around and joking and making fun of each other, man, I, I, I remember leaving college and getting to do my dream job and still saying, hey, sometimes I still miss college. I mean, I miss how much fun that was. Yeah, we, um, that's, uh, like, I don't, I don't think it's a, uh coincidence that all the guys that you know started out you know started Aerobar and all did this stuff together even you know Stevie Johnson and Isner and you know you and Mike and Golub I mean all of us played college tennis you know that it was yep. something that um you know it kind of helps develop people into <laughs> you know certain types of people and you learn experiences yeah I mean that's I mean you know i have a kid I coach that's playing at UNC now. And it's like, I, I had an almost impossible time trying to say anything bad about college tennis when he was trying to weigh, you know, do I turn pro? Do I go to college? Do I, you know, and he was number one in the country. And I'm like, man, I, 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 I don't know what turning pro at 17 is. Cause I, you know, was <laughs> just trying to be on the team at Miami, but I'm like, I, I know what college tennis was and it's awesome. And so, yeah, it's a, um, you know, his college isn't like ours was right now with all the lockdowns and such, but it's, yeah, he's loving it and getting stronger and, you know, every yeah, day. And another thing about college is we play an individual sport. So from a young age, you're really sort of specializing. You learn how to be an individual. You learn how to, to make decisions on the court, split second decisions. You learn how to problem solve on the court. But then when you go and play college tennis, part of it is you learn how to be part of a team. You know, I was a freshman and I was, uh, I think I got ranked three or four in the country at one point during my freshman year, but I was still the one that was stringing the rackets for the team. I was still the one picking up the Gatorades. I was still doing that. 
um, getting the worst seat in the van because I'm a freshman. And I think that's good for you. I really do think like paying your dues and sort of working your way up um, is something that's important because you don't want to be someone that never had that experience. They never had um, I don't know, the experience of, of growing up and getting better and, and um, sort of learning your, your way through something and being, being part of a team because the rest of your life, it's not always strictly individual. I mean, even the aspect of when you get older, you, you become part of a family. I mean, I, yeah, and you have to be a part of it. You're not just the only person you think about. And when you're on tour, I mean, I had, I felt, feel very lucky. I had 14 years on tour where I was as selfish as I can be. And that was part of my job was being selfish. It was, you have to worry about your practice time. You have to worry about your sleep. You have to worry about your training. And then you become part of a family and you become last. And I feel like being part of a team is a little bit of preparation for that because you got to think about everyone. You got to think about what's going to make this better for everyone. Sometimes you don't want to hit returns, but you're, or you don't want to hit serves, but you know your teammate needs to hit returns. You got to do that. You got to make some, those are small sacrifices. I'm talking about now when you're a family, much bigger sacrifices, but there's also greater reward. Um, and I just think it, it's college tennis is, is such a, a great way to prepare for life, I think. Yeah, no, I I would say it's, you know, the sacrifice of moving to San Diego versus the sacrifice of having to hit returns for Thomas Blake, probably equal, but, you know, again, we can leave that out there. But, you know, you raise a really good point, and something I want to follow up on here is there is, I mean, why we're so attracted to it, by the way, thank you for the very nice words. We're going to cut those out, and that's just going to be the podcast. It's just going to be you saying, oh, I loved your interview with Chris Woodruff, period. Uh, but, you know, uh, this idea of, you know, team tennis and it's not something that you commonly see week in week out on tour and of course these players these events they got to make money there are economic realities if team tennis sold that well it would be what you see week in week out on tour but you know whether it was the world team tennis this season and I know that was a special circumstance or events like Laver Cup Hopman Cup ATP Cup Davis and Fed Cup uh, clearly there is something about team tennis that works and I know now you know you are covering this sport and you also work you know I believe tournament director for Miami Open, so you also are a tournament director, but do you think there's an appeal for team tennis? Do you think it should become a larger part of pro tennis moving forward? I mean, personally, I think it should be the Olympic model. I think it should be what, what goes for the Olympics is uh, the the way Billie Jean King founded it and made it so that it's equal for men and women, where there's a set of men's singles, a set of men's doubles, a set of women's singles, a set of women's doubles, and mixed doubles, so each one counts the same. Um, I love that idea if you could do that for for the Olympics and make it a team sport because again when you go to the Olympics it's it's individual you play an individual sport but you're playing for a team so it's a little a little different than say Davis Cup or Fed Cup or uh, or any of the others so I love the I love the model but like you said it's it's just what's going to be able to sell so team tennis sometimes doesn't sell because it doesn't always have the stars um, you know Roger Federer has never played team tennis Rafa doesn't play team tennis you don't get some of the stars playing so it's tough to sell. Um, if there was a way to make it financially feasible, then I would love to see it more. But what people want to see a lot of times is who's the best individual player in an individual sport. So you want to see the Grand Slams when everyone's peaking for those and who comes out on top. That's what people want to see. So I totally understand that. But as a um, as a, a different uh, as a variation at times, I love team tennis. I love Labor Cup and the players love it. You see how much how excited they get for Labor Cup. I got excited for Hopman Cup every year. Davis Cup was one of the greatest moments of my career. So those kind of things, they, they, do, uh, they do make for, <laughs> for great camaraderie and stuff. But it, it, if it were to sell, I would love to see it more often, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's no, say hy- hypothetical, though, there, James. So let's say you beat Roger Federer at the Olympics like you did, <laughs> and then you lose mixed doubles and the female loses. How are you feeling? Yeah, like that's part of the part of the Olympics. I mean, most people go to the Olympics a lot of times as a team. Um, it's like going for a relay. I mean, if you go in a relay and you're you got four legs of the relay, you're the anchor, and you're ten seconds behind in a two hundred, you're in trouble. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, you still beat you still beat Federer. You still beat Federer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You still have that win. You still have that experience that you were there, but you do it as a team. And so I would like to, I, for me personally, I would just love to see that as being a more of a team thing. That's not to take anything away from the experience right now. When I did beat Federer at the Olympics, that was also one of the greatest moments of my career because, um, you know, for one, I considered him at the time still really the, the greatest of all time. 
And so to get that win over him, and then you, you do still feel like a team then because I got calls from the basketball team. I got um, notes all over my door from the uh, from the cycling team, from the fencing, you know, from tons of other teams um, and other athletes there. Just like then you feel like you're really part of a community. You're part of this Olympic tradition and everything. And so that was really cool, but I was still out there on my own. So if you're a part of a team, like Davis Cup, um, like Hotman Cup, where you got your, your teammates right there supporting you. It's just, it feels a little different. And I think that would be a, another way to make the Olympics a little bit different than another week on tour. Mm-hmm. No, I I mean, I would I would imagine you were probably also the first person in history to receive a death threat from the Swiss delegation. You were like, what the? <laughs> like, I didn't know you guys get angry because they're like, you knocked out Roger. Are you kidding me? And so, uh, know, but I yeah. I feel and, bad about that because he is, I mean, he's the nicest guy in the world. And he's the, <laughs> kind of the one thing missing on his resume is the singles Olympic gold. And um, I feel a little responsible for that, but I, I don't feel that bad when I go to sleep at night because he's got he's got a, a pretty full trophy closet, so I'm not worried about him. <laughs> yeah, I think he's doing all right, and I you know I do obviously want to talk more about your pro career, some of the cool things you have done. But one of the things we like to do on this podcast talk about the importance of fitness and nutrition and how the importance of it has shifted in the modern game. And you know, one thing that jumps out to me probably your best season as a pro. And correct me if I'm wrong. But that 2006 season, you play 85 matches. You go 60 and 25. I believe that's the year you reach world number four. I think there were four titles that season. And just, you know, you look at that number, 85 matches. And I'm going to swear for the first time, you're just like, holy that's a lot of matches. And so, you know, for you, how important you talked about needing to go to college to improve it. But how important were fitness and nutrition to your pro uh, to your pro career? And do you think had you played pro tennis you know in this era you would have been even more diligent you know would you have had more advantages available for you definitely it keeps getting better and better and that's why i always say i'm never gonna be one of those guys that's uh, well 40 now or 50 years old saying oh back in my day we would have beaten these guys these guys are nothing they're soft no the game gets better these guys would have wiped the floor with me back then because the game is getting better and better they have more advantages like you said they have better better knowledge of nutrition better knowledge of training better um better just facilities and everything so they're doing they're doing things better now they're doing things more um they're they're working smarter they're also working um in, in a way where they can get the most they can maximize um the effort and they can get the most out of their bodies i mean they're treating themselves like um like businesses as they should you know this is this is what's going to maximize my potential my earning potential and um, my potential on the court. So I got it. And I mean, for 2006 to be my best year and 85 matches, it had a lot to do with my shift in nutrition. And um, I had Mark Merklin was training. Uh, I know Mark knows him very well. Mark Merklin was training, uh, traveling with me um, as basically like a trainer. Um, he was helping from the USTA. I still had my coach, Brian Barker, but Mark was, tra- was traveling with me. And I realized I was having issues with cramping. And one of the things that we realized was I just wasn't getting enough nutrients. I was, I'm someone that, uh, now it's great because my metabolism is extremely fast and I was just eating kind of normal, the amount that most normal people would eat. And I was going through nutrients so quickly, especially when I was training. And then when I was on tour and playing, um, and playing matches, 85 matches, you know, you're going to go through a lot of nutrients and you're going to actually lose weight. So I was pretty much losing weight when I was at tournaments and we started realizing I need to do something proactive to keep that weight on. And so I had to start eating. I mean, I know everyone talks about Michael Phelps eating that 10,000 10, calorie a day diet or whatever. And I have to say when I was in 2006, 2007, around that time, I was probably not that far off of that. I wasn't, you know, down to the, down to the exact calorie, but I had to just get so much more in. And if you, I don't know if, uh, if anyone has the, the video, but if you see me from like 2003 to 2006, I put on probably about 10 pounds and it was all, um, thanks to Mark and I talking about it and realizing like, I need to, I need to snack more <laughs> and I needed to, to figure out. So having arrow bars would have been perfect then. Cause that was a great snack, uh, to have a nutrition wise to keep your energy high. But for me, a lot of times it was luckily I had Mark who'd give me some trail mix. He'd give me some, you know, uh, a yogurt. He'd give me something that I could always be, be eating. And, and getting in those calories. 
And now you can be more specific about the actual calories you want to get in. And back then, sometimes if I didn't have anything that was good calories, I'd, you know, I'd get in some bad calories, you know, some, uh, you know, some of those granola bars that are terrible for you that are straight sugar or whatever, like, all right, you know, I got to eat it, but I guess I needed to get calories in to, to keep, uh, keep my weight up. Um, but now I feel like you can be way more responsible about the things you're putting in your body. Yeah, we've had, um, obviously a common theme on the show of that. And I mean, everything from, you know, Jay Berger coaching and playing to, you know, even, you know, Mikey Russell and all you guys, I mean, of basically talking about, yeah, that there were times in your life where you all of a sudden realized like, Oh man, I don't really know what I'm putting in my body or man, I didn't know this was <laughs> it. And, and in college we were all doing that. I mean, we were eating, you know, Quaker oat bars and we were eating, you know, like we were lucky if we had a power bar. And again, we were, I mean, I was at Miami where, you know, the baseball team and football teams were winning national championships. And still it was like the defensive linemen got the same thing to eat that, you know, Joel Berman ate. And it's like, you know, there were different body compositions there and it's, and you know, that's was one thing we are still working on with Aero bar. So yeah, we're, we're trying it is so comical to think like at, at every time, every point in history, you think you're doing what's best for you. And yeah, to think back to what we were doing, eating power bars and drinking Gatorade. I mean, no offense to the Gatorade people, but it's sugar water. You're drinking that and thinking that's healthy for you. I used to think Gatorade was really healthy for you. I drank tons of it. When I was growing up, I used to think just drinking straight apple juice and orange juice is really good for you. Now, like my wife is, knows way more about health or did at the time, way more about health. And as I start drinking that later, she's like, are you kidding? That's just, you're, you're, you're getting so much sugar in that. I used to think those like yogurts that are just basically straight sugar. I, oh, that's, that's good for me. I'm just eating yogurt. Like, no, you're eating yogurt with a ton of sugar in it. You know, you, you think you're doing things that are that are good for you. And as you get more and more research and you start learning more about nutrition, you realize what you should be doing. And now the funny thing is now I'm healthier eating wise now than I was probably when I was 26 years old at number four in the world um, because I was unaware of what I should be doing and what I could be doing and how much, um, how much sugar I was taking in, which was terrible for me, how much fat I was taking in. that wasn't, wasn't necessary. I mean, I know I needed to get calories in, but I didn't need to get the, the amount of fat I was getting in at that oh, time. Oh no, it's, it's, cr- I mean, I'm sitting here. I mean, I'm actually, shoot, I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt from the New York city marathon that I ran for you your foundation, your, for your foundation. But it's like, yeah. Same deal. I mean, I, you know, I saw Jay after I saw Berger after I ran it the one time and he's like, dude, you are, you're twice as fit as when you played number one for me at Miami. <laughs> and I go, well, I understand twice as much about fitness and nutrition. Absolutely. You know, so it's pretty crazy. But that's why I say guys now are, are way better because they understand more. Um, they're more aware of it. And I'm, I'm impressed that, that people are taking it so seriously. And um, like I said, this is their business, so they should be serious about it. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, and when you look at the way they train, that you know, again, is different to you. And by the way, I will add in, you were absolutely a tank from like '03 <laughs> to '08. I mean, the sleeveless shirt was justified. I would say, you know, that would be a good way of describing it. But you know, you look at some of these athletes now, and we talk about this on this podcast before, and I talked about this actually with uh, Jean Michael Gamble on a show that I think will come out at before listeners hear this one. But you know, you look at these athletes, not to name drop, but by the way, Gamble before you, James. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But um, you know, uh, you look at the these type of athletes you have in the men's game now. And it's the Zverevs, the Medvedevs, even like a Hubi Hercots. Obviously, Riley Opelka is the most extreme example. But just the amount of length, the fluidity yeah. that these athletes throw at you nowadays. Do you think that's the direction, you know, I guess all sports are heading, but tennis in particular. And, you know, how do you think the ways they are training differ from the way you were training, whether it be weights or plyometrics, all of that, you know, brand of fitness? Yeah, I think it is trending that way, and I think um, you know, Mark said it said it correctly. Is that you, you've got a defensive lineman and you've got a you know a five foot eight tennis player eating the same. They can't do that. They need to train different. And John Isner needed to train in a different way than I did. He needed to do a lot more uh, precautionary training to avoid injury than I did because I'm six one, he's six ten, and so he had to protect his bigger joints. Um, and his, um, you know, his muscles from, from tearing and having, and having issues. Um, so I think Riley Opelka needs to train a little different, but I do think the game is trending much taller. Uh, when I started on tour, 
Um, I was probably average to maybe even feeling like I was about average to maybe even a little above average in terms of height and size. And by the time I retired 14 years later, I felt like I was one of the short guys on tour because so many guys, I mean, you got the Del Pochos, you've got the guys that are six, five, six, six and up. Um, I was the littlest guy on our Davis cup team. Um, and so I feel like it is trending that way, but they need to train differently. They need to, um, to protect the fact that they're, um, they're bigger and it's a little greater chance of injury. I think when you're that big, um, but they're doing an excellent job. And I think that was always the case when we, when I was coming up and you're six one and you see guys that are seven feet in the NBA and moving the way they move, you look at a guy like Kevin Durant, who's a legit seven footer and can move the way he moves. People are wondering, is that going to come to tennis? And you're starting to see guys that are bigger, um, that are moving well. Riley Opelka is a guy that, you know, he doesn't move like Kevin Durant, but he moves better than Isner and he's got, um, some pretty impressive skills and he's still young. So he's growing into, um, and getting more comfortable with his body and, and, and his frame and figuring out ways to train. So I think they're going to just have to figure out exactly how to be able to train and to stay healthy because it's a lot of matches. You said, I mean, for me, 85 matches in a year, it's a lot of matches to play at seven feet tall. Um, so I think they're just going to have to figure out a way to be smart. And they're learning. I think, again, they're getting smarter. You're learning from guys like Roger, Rafa, Novak. They're starting to really tailor their schedules to make them individual, to make them what, uh, figure out what works for them, how much is too much, and how much they need to play to get confidence and to get matches in. And so those bigger guys may need to figure that out. Even at a young age, I think a guy like Riley Opelka may need to tailor his schedule so that he's not playing you know, 25 tournaments a year, he may need to play 22 or 21 to make it so that he can stay healthy and peak for all of those events. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And again, I have so many more questions for you that could keep you here for three days, but we'll go, you know, <laughs> sort of, I'll go across the board here for home stretch, just a fun one for you. If right. you could coach any player on tour right now, who would oh. you pick and why? Oh, wow. Um, well, so I, I used to talk to my coach about these kind of things and, some of the players that you do, I always thought like the worst player you'd want to coach is someone that's coached very well. So you could go on and, and, and join them as a coach and you really can't say much. You get on there and you don't, what can you do? What can, I always thought of someone like David Ferrer. What can you coach him better than the way he played? A guy like Michael Eugenie, how can you coach him better than the way he's gotten the most out of his potential? So one guy, so my, so that's a long way of saying what I would like to see as a coach is someone that maybe isn't necessarily always reaching their potential so right now the person i see the most that isn't necessarily reaching their potential and there's the possibility that they could and could show tremendous improvement is probably nick curios and i know that's probably not someone that a lot of people are saying hey let me line up to coach nick curios because of all the history he's had with um you know his antics on the court sometimes his antics off the court sometimes but i do feel like he's someone that has tons of potential tons of opportunity so that's where you test your your strength as a coach if you can do it um all this is to say i could not coach anyone right now i as i said i've got i've got kids that are six and eight years old and i actually love being home and around them because i also think to be an effective coach you really need to be on tour and you need to be with that person at least 20 to 30 weeks out of the year and i just don't see myself traveling like that right now so um not that uh not that nick would want me to coach him ever right uh, right now or anything but it's just to say that I think he's someone that could reach his potential um, with the help of a, of a great coach. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, certainly in terms of shoulder talent up there with anyone on tour. Oh, I mean, just the, you see that serve. Yeah, and you're just like, please let me do that. Um, <laughs> James, no, sorry, I actually, James, I actually think that's why a lot of college coaches recruit the kids I coach because they, they just see how much better they can be with better coaching. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it works. I tell the kids' parents that. I'm like, listen. It's going to pay off with scholarship. They're going to see that they were that good with me. Just think if they got good coaching. We see the upside there. I like it. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good argument. I like that one. Well, then uh, I'm going to veer away from tennis. You have written a couple of books in your life, James. Obviously, you wrote your own autobiography. You also wrote about, you know, ways of grace, stories of activism, adversity, and how sports can bring us together, which came in the wake after, you know, uh, what happened in 2015. I'm just curious curious for you uh you know a how important was that second book for you and b just to have a medium to channel your thoughts as an author obviously that's not something a lot of tennis players do so what has that meant to you 
Yeah, I mean, both of mine were, were two very, very different projects. Uh, the first one, uh, to me, was extremely cathartic. I'm not someone that's generally outwardly expressive about emotional stuff. I'm not, uh, before writing that book, I wouldn't say I was um, someone that opened up a ton. Um, even to the people that I was closest with, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't always the, the most open, but then to write that book, it took about a year um, and to write that and to get down all my thoughts, all my feelings about my dad, all my feelings about the year I went through in 2004. It was an experience like no other for me. And, and I really, really cherished it because I got to, to say a lot of things I probably never would have said. Um, and then people were able to relate to me. Fans were able to relate to me so much better um, to hear about my father going through his illness, to hear me having struggles um, at that time because everyone has struggles in their lives. Not, not everyone gets to go and play in front of 20,000 people. So they can't relate the same way to that, but they can relate to, to having a family struggle and to having a, a parent die um, and having to deal with cancer. So um, that um, was really special to me. And I still have people telling me that they read the book and it meant something to them. So that's that was cool. And then I, I said after that first one, I said, I hope I never have to write a second. People ask, are you going to write another one? I said, I hope I never have to write a second book uh, because I wouldn't want to go through what I went through to have to write this one. Um, and then what happened to me in 2015, where I was attacked by an NYPD officer um, uh, in New York, actually going to the open, it sort of forced me to, to look into how I can speak up, what I can do, what I can say to make a difference and, and help others that don't have the same platform that I do. So um, I wrote that book and that one was totally different because that one, honestly, it felt more like going back to college and doing sort of a research paper because I was researching other athletes. I was researching, I was doing interviews. I was talking to people. I was, you know, sitting in front of my computer writing about, um, not just writing about myself, which obviously you don't need to do any research for, but this one, you were doing a, lot, a little bit more work, but it was fun. I hadn't been in college in 15 years or so. Um, so it was fun to go back and do that. And then also to be inspired by, by some of the people that I was talking to and inspired by some of the stories I was reading about. So that one was, was totally different. And, um, it, it went well. And then now in the, the wake of the George Floyd incident, I've heard so many more people saying they either went back and, and read it or they saw it for the first time or they wanted to hear my perspective now about what was going on. And, and that meant a lot to me. So I was um, again, I was, I was proud of it, but they were two totally different projects. Um, and I'm glad I got to do both of them, really. Yeah, no, and obviously, you you know, looking further even more at your activism, that's something that's been so important to you. You found the Thomas, Bl uh, Thomas Blake Senior Memorial Research Fund. You have the James Blake Foundation, which, you know, uh, that anyone thought it was a good idea for Mark Aerosmith to run a marathon. We'll get back to that at a different time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, activism is obviously something that's important to you. And, you know, yeah. we are, as we're recording this, we're still trying to figure out who won the presidential election. But we are all keenly aware of the activism of these past few months, particularly from Athens athletes who have made getting out the vote such a critical part of this election season. And, you know, that's not something, you know, I'm, I, I really do. I, I'd say the only elections I remember that well are probably 08, 12, and now, you know, since then. Uh, but I just feel like this is something we haven't seen before. And obviously, uh, as someone who has very often tried to be, you know, and live the change they want to see, what has this wave of activism meant for you? Do you think this is something we will see continue even beyond this election season? And do you think this is something we will see trickle down to tennis? I know that's a Barbara Walters 60 Minutes question. I apologize. But, <laughs> you know, just curious, what, what do you think about uh, the activism we have seen? You know, I'm, I'm really impressed by the activism we've seen, um, seeing the Milwaukee Bucks hold up the NBA and then really hold up the entire sports world for at least a day was something that was truly inspiring. And also they did it without the without knowing that their owners would support them, even though their owners did support them, which was great to see. Um, but they did it with a purpose. After they did that, they said, we'll come back, but you have to open the arenas uh, for polling places, for letting people vote in underprivileged areas. And you see the difference that was made in terms of this year, the the voting has gone up. This is the uh, the most people that have voted ever in an election. Um, it's, it's increased a large margin from 2016. So whether whoever you're voting for, the fact that we got more people out voting and uh, athletes did that, I think it lends credence to the fact that they can tell anyone that's saying shut up and dribble that they should shut up because they, because they've made a difference. Uh, LeBron speaking up, anyone speaking up and saying vote and go out and make a difference and, and have your voice heard. And that's how you can make a difference in this country. That's always going to be a good thing. The more people voting, the better. And the more access to voting, 
um, whether it's getting rid of voter ID laws, opening up polling places, making it easier for people to, to, to legally vote, it, it's always going to be a positive. So I think it shows, and that's part of writing Ways of Grace, is people don't always realize how much um, sports and athletes can affect society. And I think, I'm not saying that, that um, one person saying go out and vote has increased uh, the voter rolls by 10 million, but maybe it's helped by half a million or a million, and that makes that can make a difference. You see how, like you said, we're still waiting to see who's who's president, and some of these states it's coming down to 1,000, 2,000 people, and so who knows if those people were inspired to vote um, by the actions of some athletes, and so they're they're making a difference in the world, in a, on a much grander scale than putting a ball through a hoop or hitting a ball over a net. So that's something that's impressive when you have um, fans to do something positive with it. That's something that, uh, you know, Arthur Ashe, my idol, that's why I named the book Ways of Grace as an homage to his memoir, Days of Grace. You know, he always said it, it's what you give that makes the difference. You know, it's, it's, it's what you're doing for other people. I've heard so many stories of firsthand accounts of him. Of the, one of the first questions he asked is like, what are you doing? And instead of it meaning, you know, what's your job? It's like, no, what are you doing to help other people? And that was the way he always um, had an impact. And that's why I'm, I'm so proud that he's, uh, he has the the greatest um, the greatest stadium in our sport is named after him, even though he was never our greatest athlete. He was never the greatest tennis player, even in, in America, um, let alone uh, the history of, of men's tennis. But he made a difference in so many people's lives, and that's why you credit him with having the biggest stadium in our sport. No, absolutely. I mean, if anything, we already know this election saw the highest rate of turnout since I think 1900. And it's like, it shouldn't be this difficult. It shouldn't take an election like this to bring everyone to vote. And so to see that activism, yeah, it absolutely paid off. We're going to have over 160 million Americans vote this year. Uh, That is something that's pretty cool, regardless of you know, all the drama that came with the outcome. But all right, this is going to be the all-time transition of all time. Uh, well, actually, let's stick, I guess, one more on the James Blake Foundation, because again, uh, what you guys are doing so admirable. And uh, just again, how are ways people can get active, get involved with the James Blake Foundation? What are you guys doing right now? Well, just uh, yesterday, we this year, we well, so we've done the, the marathon. The marathon's been our biggest event, actually, over the last five or six years, thanks to people like Mark Aerosmith for running it. And and he was our top raiser in terms of uh, fundraising that year as well. So, um, anyway, I raised the out. most money both both years. I did it, by the way. I raised the most money. It's not about how fast you run. Yeah. So, it, and we appreciate <laughs> so much. So that was one. Unfortunately, that was canceled this year. So uh, well, we have to look. You gotta, you know, you gotta throw out the bait to get the a, big fish. Uh, uh, you know, but, I thought a pretty creative yeah. way that our, our team came up with. I did a, a virtual cooking show with Richard Blaze, um, yeah. <laughs> famous chef on Top Chef. And so he basically was teaching me how to cook, which is a, a monumental task because um, I I pretty much make toast and smoothies and, uh, and frozen uh, so well, waffles James, for the hope kids. You and your and family stay safe, the, stay healthy, take care. So, we'll um, talk to you again soon. I did a, a cooking thing and people could sign up and we actually sent the ingredients to them and they were cooking along with us. So that was something that was... Um, that I thought was creative and it was something I, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, Hey, we had a lot of fun. It turned into a night that you know, I, I did this with my husband, with my wife, with my kids, um, with whoever. And we just, we, we cooked and we, we, we had some wine and we did, uh, we did, we turned it into a night where we're watching as myself and Richard blaze are trying to have fun and, uh, and joking around talking tennis, talking cooking. And, you know, so that was something that we did. And, uh, next year we'll try to hopefully get back to the New York city marathon. And getting runners to do that, I usually do. Um, I usually do a few other little like dinner events or whatever. I'm gonna this year try again, again getting creative. We're gonna try possibly a virtual, um, an online poker event. I've, that's one of my sort of uh, passions. Is uh, since I since I stopped playing tennis, is a way to get the competitive juices out. Is I play I play a lot of cards and play poker. So we kind of work that into to making making something positive out of it and uh, and doing a, a virtual poker event. Mm-hmm. I'm very glad you say that because that's what I was going to try and transition to right now. James Blake, better poker or tennis player? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've played more poker recently, but I did commit a, a huge chunk of my life to tennis. So I don't think my, <laughs> my poker will ever uh, catch up to my tennis, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I've noticed there's a big tennis poker crossover. Tennis players are gamblers, and I guess you have to be since it's all on you. Um, but I just that's one of those little things you notice. I feel like there's that, and then, of course, there's a lot of golfers as well, a lot of tennis golf crossover. That's just where I'm yeah. sure you're gambling. You know, when it's you and Marty Fish out there, it's, hey, five bucks this hole or maybe a little bit larger because you guys can afford it. <laughs> James, better get some strokes. Larger, but, it's a, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I get a lot of strokes from him too. But, yeah, I actually think poker, there's a, there's a correlation a little bit with um, one of the best attributes I have in poker is um, I've talked to a lot of pro poker players that tell me this is, is sort of my demeanor um, because I feel like I prepared for that in tennis is you got highs and lows. You're down a break, you're up a break. That doesn't mean it's over until you walk away from the table. It's not over. You, you don't, um, you don't get too crazy high, too crazy low. You take some uh, called bad beats. You take some bad beats and you don't freak out and go on on tilt, which is what it's called. Cause I mean, we've all seen tennis players do that. You get a bad call and then you flip out and you're, you're useless for a set, a set and a half. You can't let that happen. And similar to poker, you can't let that happen there. So that's probably the, the one thing I'm I've taken from tennis and tried to, um, tried to use in poker. Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. All right. Last few for you. I promise. Uh, <laughs> your, yeah. Your biggest rival in your career. Oh, um, well, he probably wouldn't consider me a rival since he beat up on me so much, but probably Andy. I mean, Andy and I uh, kind of came up similar time. He probably broke through just a little before me. And so our careers were pretty much intertwined the whole time. He was almost his entire career. He was the, the American number one and I was the American number two and um, somewhat chasing him. But, um, you know, we played, I think, 12 times. Uh, he got, I think it was 9-3 him or something like that. I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong. So. You may have you blanked out two of them, or you've just removed them. It's eleven three, Andy, for whatever. Eleven three, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, got me a couple times right there at the end, maybe. Um, but no, he, <laughs> those so don't he was, count. <laughs> but it was something where, like, I I I didn't love playing him because I hated returning that serve or trying to return that serve. But um, I did feel like he pushed me. I mean, uh, I talked to him about it, and I remember back to so many practices we had where we were just beating on each other and neither one of us wanted to stop because we wanted to just keep going we wanted to show we can go we can keep going and and we want to win this and we want to win every baseline game and um you know i don't know if he would say it but i'm gonna say it for sure like he made me better the fact that i wanted to kind of keep chasing him so um i like to think i had some sort of an influence on him as well and he obviously had um, a hall of fame career and absolutely deserved it i was at his hall of fame induction and you know, couldn't be more proud of him. Um, and every time he was in a final, every time he was um, not across the net from me, I wanted to see him do well too. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I'm looking at this career head to head right now. Did anyone hit the ball harder that you've ever seen than Fernando Gonzalez? That forehand. That forehand was massive. Um, he absolutely clubbed it. I can't think of anyone that hit it harder. I mean, uh, Andy, obviously his serve was the biggest in terms of just pace I had ever seen and probably will ever see since I'm not on, on tour anymore to see those guys. But, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, Andy's serve and Fernando's forehand were probably two of the biggest shots I ever saw. Better question. Did that ball hit Fernando Gonzalez's racket? <laughs> at, <laughs> at I mean, just, just, just go to the tape. I think everyone can see, see whether or not that hit him. Uh, the, the other question is, that, did he realize it? And I think we all probably know the answer to that, too. <laughs> Sometimes the softest forehand Fernando Gonzalez hit is, was the biggest one. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I love that. Well, then, with that in mind, you can replay one of these matches. Which do you pick? The Olympic win over Federer or 0-2 leg Mason? You beat Agassi. You go on to win your first title and what that moment meant to your career. Oh, um, I think the Olympics. As much as I love Andre, I look up to him and respect him. Uh, beating Roger, who I consider uh, the greatest of all time, doing it in uh, with USA on my chest. That was uh, that was a moment I'll never forget and, and something I'll always cherish. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Yeah, but I, just to quickly on that 0-2 moment, to get a title that early in your career, you're fresh mm-hmm. out of college, you beat Andre Agassi in the semifinals. Was that one of those inflection points, one of those confidence-building moments where you're like, okay, I have arrived? Oh, it was huge. That, that, um, so that was two weeks that was just incredible because I went um, – the week before I won Cincinnati doubles with Todd Martin mm-hmm. and um, had no idea how big a deal that was um, to win a master series. It was just, I was still, like you said, I was young. I was having fun. Todd was someone I looked up to. 
we were kind of um, like the odd couple together. He's this you know, calm, cool, collected. I was at that point still brash and young and flashy and um, going for big shots. And he was just steady as can be. And so we, we meshed well as a doubles team. And then to go there, build some confidence there, get to DC. And it happened to be the one week that my coach couldn't be there because uh, his sister was getting married. So I had just one of my best friends travel with me and um, he was, couldn't have been like more positive and the whole week, just like happy. And um, we joked like halfway through the, you know, winning my first round, second round, I was like, what happened if I, if I win, do I just, do I fire Brian and he never comes back? Do I, you know, do I hire you? And, you know, Brian had always had job security. So that was never an issue. We were completely joking, but then it gets more and more real. And I go out there and I play Andre and I'm playing, lose as can be because he's, you know, he's Andre Agassi. So I'm just, I have nothing to lose and end up, you know, everything's going in and then get a little nervous in the finals, lose the first set badly. Um, and then come back and win it on one of the hottest, one of the hottest matches I've ever played in my life. I mean, the, the thermometer was pinned at 120 degrees out there. Um, so just getting through it at the end was, uh, was the goal. And, um, so yeah, to, to have that feeling, my parents came down, um, seeing them, I had a bet with my dad, my dad, um, had never, I'd never seen him in my life without a beard. Um, and my mom actually said the same thing. He always had a beard. So I said, if I ever win a tournament, uh, when I got on tour, I said, if I ever win a tour event, you have to shave your beard. And so I remember telling him after the match, I said, Hey, I got some clippers. We got to get to it. And, and he, uh, he did shave. And the one time in our, in my entire life, I saw him without a beard is because I won that event. So I still remember the smile on his face, the smile on my mom's face. And, um, and that moment was pretty special. And I, I never knew if I'd win it, win again or not, but it, it was something that I always, Brian and I always used to talk about things you accomplished that, that can never be taken away. And that was one of the first ones on tour that I felt like, Hey, I want a title on the tour. It's something that no one will ever be able to take away from me. And I was, I was really thrilled and proud of that, uh, that week. Yeah, no, I mean, again, and I, I said it at the top. I'll say it again. Obviously, as someone who uh, most of my youth was in the 2000s, it was a lot of time spent watching you play. And so it was always great. You know, it was always a pleasure to to see the headband out there to know, okay, when I go bald, that's what I can look like, too. So, you know, there's always that little Uh, confirmation. yeah, trying to make it look cool. I, I did what I could. Yeah, you succeeded. I mean, I even used the 03, I guess. So that shows you where I was at. That The Prince 03 racket appealed to me. Oh, it was wow. me and you and no yeah. one else. Um, but anyways, yeah. yeah, that's a little joke out there. We could throw that aside. But yeah. again, obviously, yeah. James, uh, this was so great to have the chance to speak with you. Uh, seriously, uh, such a fan of your game and obviously all you continue to do to promote and develop the game of tennis. And so you, you probably realize this, but there's always is going to be a spot open for you on this podcast should you ever want to talk again thank you i appreciate it i love listening to it so uh keep up with the great work on the college tennis and um i mean i can't believe you you dipped as low as having my brother on but um but that was a lot of that was a lot of fun to listen to you too Oh, well, look you gotta you know you gotta throw out the bait to get the big fish uh, but you know. we have- we actually ranked we ranked the order of importance in the Blakes, and he came up a little ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I've, I've, I've gotten used to that throughout my life, but that's uh, that's funny. He is. I'm sure he was much more intelligent. He's always still got that on me. Uh, so, well, James, hope you and your family stay safe, stay healthy, take care, and hopefully Thank we'll you. talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks, James. Hope all of you enjoyed our conversation with James Blake. Of course, a huge thank you to him for taking the time to chat with us. I did not expect us to go the full hour. I was like, hey, 30 to 40 minutes work. And he was like, yeah, dude, keep going until you're out of questions. And I definitely had another probably three, four hours in me. But that's just an excuse to bring him back on the podcast another time. So, again, a huge thank you to him. A huge thank you to Mark Aerosmith, Andrew Golub, our friends at Aerobar, for helping to set all of this up. Of course, the way you can go support them is by going to Aerobar using that promo code CRACKED15. Get 15% off the only tennis-specific energy bars in the business, of course. While you're at it, go update your equipment as well, MidwestSports.com. Maybe you think you've got the biceps to pull off the James Blake look. Maybe you've also got a receding hairline like myself and you need the headband look at a minimum. You can find all of that and more with our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order, of course. We've got a lot of more fun stuff coming up for you all here this week on the Cracked Interviews podcast. I tease these, excuse me, 
in some of seeing it. The tease just got me so excited. Um, I teased these in some of our other podcasts, but we've done interviews now with our first two head coaches as we begin to preview the 2021 ITA men's tennis season. Uh, both of those coming out this week, Manny Diaz, Adam Steinberg. Be on the lookout for those podcasts here on this Cracked Interviews uh, show. Of course, Matt Stokoyak, Chris Hallioris, and I are going to get together to preview those two teams and what their outlook is for the 2021 season on the Mini Break podcast. So be on the lookout for those as well as well as your daily updates on the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. We've got a lot of cool content coming up at Cracked Rackets as well. We're going to reboot our next-gen series. Our new writer, uh, David Gherkin, is going to take care of that. Excuse me. And we also have Judson Wall joining our team. We've got a lot of fun stuff planned. So to find all of our content, just go to our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need more updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westa, for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out again, of course, as well, to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15. Go to Aerobar.com. Use the promo code Cracked15. But... With that in mind, for our wonderful guest, James Blake, our wonderful co-host, Mark Aerosmith, our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Greskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Crack Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Right now.